I actually teach high school history and English over at East Lake High School on the Sammamish Plateau. Before that, oh, by the way, that history teacher thing, keep that in the back of your mind, that may come up once or twice this morning. Um, but before that, I was actually a youth and college director um, at a small church uh, in Los Angeles. I did a little bit of graduate studies in theology, and it was actually doing Bible research over at Reach uh, that I first met and became friends with Jeremy. This is just a little bit about me that I thought I'd share because when Jeremy asked me to preach a few weeks, not a few weeks ago, a few months ago, really, uh, I got to admit, I was a little reticent about doing it. It's been a long time for me, and the weight and the gravity of preaching God's word to his people, it, it, was, it was weighing on me heavily. And it, it's, it's a humbling feeling. And in all honesty, it's been giving me a, a, a newfound appreciation for the work and the sacrifice that Jeremy and his family give to us every week. So I just want to take a moment and say thank you to Jeremy and Rachel and their entire family for the sacrifices they make for our church. It's amazing. Um, though I may be a little nervous, our God is not. So it is fitting that we take a moment to pray before diving into our passage. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, it is indeed a blessing to come before our family here and to open your word and to see what it is your spirit has given us uh, and, and to, to truly uh, discover more about you so that in our relationship with you we can grow in our affection and our love and our service of you. Lord, I pray that in my weak in state, that you would be strong, that you would speak clearly through me, and that our hearts might be open to receive what you have for us in this text. Lord, we thank you again and we praise you. It is in your name we pray. Amen. If you haven't been with us for the last couple of weeks, we've been in the middle, we're now in the middle of our Advent series, which is focused on the Magnificat, or Mary's song, um, which is Mary's reaction to the news that the angel Gabriel gives to her that she will bear the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, Jeremy started this series, and if you haven't heard it, I would suggest you check it out. Uh, in the first week, he spoke about how worship is the natural overflow of the joy that we experience in God. Last week, we learned about the significance of God's holiness and his name. Well, I'm going to pick up right where Jeremy left off by quickly rereading the Magnificat, and uh, we'll spend the rest of our time camped out in verse 50. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 1. Um, we're going to start in verse 46, and I'm going to read just a handful of these verses. It says this, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, if you haven't been with us, the first question you might be asking is, this song, what is it about? Why is Mary singing? What is she singing about? Mary has just been visited by an angel of the Lord, Gabriel, and he has given her significant news that she, in spite of her impoverished, chaste, in single state, will become the mother of the promised Messiah, the Son of God. Now, Jeremy warned me not to get too deep into the historical stuff because as a history teacher, I, I can't fight that urge too much. But uh, at the same time, it's important for us to understand the context of why this particular announcement is so significant and so crazy. Okay, so... Uh, first, let's take a moment at the, to look at the ancient Near Eastern culture to understand why this announcement might be so shocking to Mary. For one thing, 
Mary is a Jewish person. At this time, the Jewish homeland, which is now modern-day Israel, was under Roman occupation. And as such, all the tribes and ethnicities under the Roman Empire lived as inferior to the Roman people as a whole. And so Jews throughout history, but in particular during Roman times, were marginalized as a people group. Secondly, she is, you guessed it, a woman. Ladies, I hate to say this, but throughout history, you've been given the short end of the stick. Um, every culture pretty much throughout history has marginalized women even further than other groups because they are what we call patriarchal. Uh, the Roman society is no exception. The Jewish society at this time was not really an exception. And so Mary being born as a Jewish woman already has two strikes against her. To add to that, she's also unmarried. She's going to be married, but she's unmarried at this time. Uh, she's young. In fact, in this culture, uh, most women were married at the age of 12, 13, maybe 14. So she's, she's very young. And last of all, she's poor. So if I'm keeping score, that's about five strikes against her, which puts her on roughly equal footing as a slave. Though, honestly, there's probably some slaves in Roman culture who had a lot more power than her. So suffice it to say, when the angel Gabriel refers to her as favored, you can appreciate why she might kind of scoff at that or be put back by that, that title because she doesn't see anything in her life that would make her feel favored. There's a little bit more than that. So right after she gets this announcement, she runs and in, in, in we read in Luke that she goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth, on the other hand, we find out uh, earlier in the chapter, is advanced in years and she is descended from a line of priests dating over a thousand years all the way back to the first Jewish priest, Aaron. She's also married to a priest, Zacharias. Now this is important because in a Jewish social hierarchy, this puts her on significantly higher footing than her younger uh, teenage cousin, Mary. We're going to come back to this later. But back to our passage, it's worth pointing out that in Mary's song, we only read the first half of it, we'll cover the second half in the next couple weeks, but in the entirety of it, there's 10 verses, and Mary makes over one dozen references to the Old Testament. Now that's impressive for you know, this illiterate Jewish teenager, um, but if you think about it, if you ask the average Christian to recite even 10 verses from the Old Testament, you might get like four of the Ten Commandments, you know, half of Genesis 1-1, maybe a sprinkling of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and that's about it, let's be honest. And it's sad, but why is that? Why is that? Now, before you start shifting in your seats, I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty, but understand that in Mary's context, oral tradition made it only natural for regular men and women, boys and girls, to memorize vast amounts of scripture. You see, the printing press hadn't been invented, the, there were no computers, paper wasn't readily available, and so each town or city would only have maybe one, two copies of the Old Testament. They were copied all by hand, they were expensive, they took a lot of time, and so if you wanted to know the Word of God, you had to rely on hearing it, and if you wanted to really know it, you had to memorize it. It was necessary. In fact, in certain Jewish circles, young boys would be required to memorize the entire five, first five books of the Old Testament, known as the Torah. Can you imagine doing that today? In our context, we often just fail to see the value in that type of memorization. Sadly, uh, with the advent of things like computers, smartphones, Alexa, uh, there just isn't this pressing need for us to remember anything anymore. It's not at all that we're incapable of doing it. We simply haven't made a priority. 
I'm going to circle back to this later, but I would submit to you uh, that we are missing out as Christians if we do not regularly read and commit to memory the Holy Word of God. Now, as I mentioned, Mary is both fond of and familiar with the scriptures. Uh, In her context and Luke's, a process that historians refer to as Hellenization has taken place throughout the Mediterranean region. Now, this process is not named after Helen of Troy, by the way. It's actually named after uh, the Greek word for the Greeks themselves, the Hellas. And it refers to uh, what happened as a result of the conquests of Alexander the Great. When Alexander the Great conquered all these areas several hundred years before Mary's time, he insisted that all of the great cultural works that, uh, of his conquered peoples be translated into Greek. And so the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into a book known as the Septuagint, into the Greek language. That's why when you look through your Bible, um, you may notice that certain Old Testament verses that are referenced in the New Testament have slightly different wording. It's because the New Testament author, Luke in this case, uh, is using a Greek translation, he's using the Septuagint. Now the reason I bring this up is because as as we look closer at verse 50, Um, it's important to unpack the full context of these words. Mary is, in fact, quoting Psalm 103, verse 17, which states, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. You may notice that the wording is just slightly different. By understanding both the original uh, Hebrew and translated Greek, my hope is that the fullness that the Holy Spirit intended will take hold in our hearts and we will be able to truly feast on the grace and mercy that he demonstrates here in this passage. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to look at several of the words in these verses and unpack them a little bit. Uh, We're going to go backwards through the text as we examine the words. The first word we're going to look at is that word fear. This is translated the same way in both the Old Testament and the New. In the part of the Old Testament that Psalms is found, known as the the wisdom writings, the Hebrew word yare is typically associated with fear or respect. Reverence is another word that comes with it. The Greek word, on the other hand, phobeo, is a little different and includes something that's a little more scary. It means literally to put to flight. Um, This is also where we get our word phobia, by the way. But so for the Hebrew people, fear in relation to God was a natural response given their and our sinful position next to the holy and just God of the universe. For Mary, echoing the words of her forefather David, this fear is both proper and expected. However, without the other components of God's character that she mentions, it's problematic because it creates an image of a very impersonal God that dispenses justice according to a very strict guideline that leaves us as sinners with very little, if no, hope. The Bible, taken as a whole, presents a somewhat complex view of fear. On the one hand, the command, fear not or do not fear, appears more often than any other command in the Bible. It appears dozens of times to a variety of people, including Mary, earlier in Luke chapter 1. On the other hand, biblical wisdom tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In the New Testament, the Apostle John reminds believers that perfect love casts out fear. So how do we reconcile these seemingly contradictory ideas? To help illustrate the balance, let me tell you about my son, Elias. Elias is 21 months old. Now, we also have a small Boston Terrier at home named Bacon. And Bacon is arguably the world's worst guard dog in history. Because he loves everybody, and he probably wouldn't defend our house if his life depended on it. Well, Elias loves 
bacon, as you might imagine. Um, part of every day when I get home involves me taking Elias downstairs uh, to let bacon out and to feed him. Elias, as a 21-month-old, takes this very seriously. And Bacon's getting on in years. He's 11 and a half now, and I don't know how this happened, but somehow Elias figured out that the, the food, the kibbles that we feed Bacon are, are simply too hard for Bacon's sensitive teeth. So what he did was he took all of Bacon's kibbles and he put them in Bacon's water dish to soften them up. That's the kind of relationship they have. It's really special. Now, to contrast that, we recently visited my aunt and uncle uh, for Thanksgiving a few weeks ago, and they have a chocolate lab. This lab is significantly larger than, than bacon, and uh, if you've never seen a 21-month-old child, you haven't been here before, and uh, they're, they're a little less than three feet tall, uh, weigh between 20 and 30 pounds, and can lose their balance with a gentle breeze. So we come in, and this dog, very friendly, by the way, starts to you know, just check out the visitors, greets everyone, smells them, the whole dog thing, and this dog gets very, very close to Elias. He was terrified. He was terrified. He cried hysterically for over a half an hour. And even after we removed the dog from the room, it took him a long time to calm down. We almost left because of this. You see, his, Elias's instinctive response was that this creature was bigger than him, stronger than him, and could do him significant harm. Fear or terror more directly, made sense because he wasn't familiar with this dog, but he understood inherently the danger that came with the dog. Now, to, to, to contrast this, about a year ago, uh, as Elias was learning to crawl, he was trying to figure out his friend Bacon, and naturally that involved grabbing Bacon's face. And uh, Bacon, getting a little old, as I mentioned, didn't take too kindly to that, and he, he snapped at Elias. Now, since then, as a side note, Sarah and I have decided to keep them more or less separate until Elias can figure out how to properly interact with the dog. But to make my point, in spite of de this demonstration of Bacon's power, uh, Elias is not terrified of Bacon. He's not terrified because he knows Bacon. He has a relationship with him. He interacts with him. He loves Bacon. Now, occasionally, though, he will flinch if Bacon comes barreling toward him because, again, he understands and respects the power and strength of this dog. We, likewise, as God's people, understand rightly uh, and revere the power, justice, and holiness of God. But because we've been forgiven, we've been adopted and brought into God's family, we do not live in a state of terror to our all-powerful God. On occasion... As a loving father, however, he does remind us of his power and that we would be wise to revere him, especially if we grab at his proverbial face. Now, our next word we're going to look at is this word generation. Though it's translated everlasting in our verse in Psalm, the connotations are the same. Many times as 21st century Christians, we assume the meaning and connotations are the same uh, for us as it would have been 2,000 plus years ago when it was written. And the problem here with reading it that way is it can easily lead to misunderstanding or even misinterpreting uh, the intended meaning. In this case, we might read the word generation and think it or assume it means something similar to like the age difference between my dad and me, for example. What generation and everlasting refer to here is simply a figurative way of expressing the unending nature of God's love and mercy for his people. It is eternal. 
Now this is really important that this term generation has these eternal connotations because it reminds us of our eternal uh, or our assured salvation. You see, when we come into God's family, we are in it forever. Um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, uses the, the language of adoption to illustrate this. Now, this image is very important because, again, in, in our context, the term adoption doesn't necessarily carry with it the same legal ramifications that it did in its original Roman context. In the, his letter to the Ephesians, uh, Paul states that he, Jesus, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Again, Understanding this in its original context adds massive weight to these words. So I want to explain it just briefly for us. In our context, if you and I have children and things don't go well and we fight and fight and fight and eventually we just cannot be in each other's lives anymore, legally we have the right to disown or, or disinherit or, or write that person out of our will, right? Now, God willing, that will never happen for any of us, but but that can happen. That was similar to Roman context. However, in Roman context, if you had adopted somebody, you did not have that right. So you could do it to your natural born children, but you could not do it to your adopted children. So no matter what that adopted child did, you're stuck with them. They're, they are legally entitled to an inheritance by Roman law. Likewise, as we, we as Christians are called fellow heirs with Christ, and because we have been adopted, we cannot lose our inheritance. Now the last word we're going to explore shows up differently in Mary's song than it does in our, uh, our psalm. In Mary's song, the word elios, or mercy, tends to paint an oversimplified version of the Hebrew word hased, or steadfast love, which is what appears in your Bible. Now I want to be clear that mercy is a crucial aspect of steadfast love, but the Hebrew word will help us more fully understand the nature of God's love for us. This word has said is used 240 times in the Old Testament, and it is the most commonly used word to describe God's love for his people. This is significant because there's like eight different Hebrew words and a handful of Greek words for love, and each one of these includes unique aspects that ex uh, differentiate who or what is the object of the love, uh, who is the lover, how that love is expressed, etc. Uh, in the case of said or loving kindness, or steadfast love, there's three main components that I want to focus on. The first of these is strength. Now keep in mind these attributes do overlap, and without all of them, our understanding, again, will be seen through our limited 21st century lens. The strength here connects the, objects of God, the object of God's love, us, to him through covenant. God alone was able to overcome the barrier of sin and death through the cross. And Christ's strength was demonstrated through his sinlessness, which enabled us to be reconciled to God. The strength is further demonstrated by empowering us through the Holy Spirit to put to death the sin that dwells in us and to extend the, the same love that God has to other people. It is because of the strength of his love that we are actually able to do these things. And as believers, this should give us great confidence and gratitude because it reminds us that this love cannot be weakened or lessened by anything that we do. God's love is stronger than our sin. It is mightier than our rebellion. It is also steadfast, which is our second component of said. This is similar to strength, but there's a different aspect of it that I think the King James Version captures really well with this translation of the same word, which they, they translate as long-suffering. 
This endurance is captured beautifully by the Old Testament prophet Hosea. Um, To illustrate God's love for his people, God asks the prophet Hosea to marry a, how shall I say, wayward woman. A woman he knows is going to be unfaithful to him. And so, as the obedient prophet, uh, Hosea goes and, and marries a woman named Gomer. Great name, by the way, for you future parents. Boy or girl, fantastic. Lo and behold, Gomer uh, is unfaithful. She cheats, and she actually gets pregnant multiple times by other men. And God asks, and uh, Hosea answers and obeys. He stays the course, remains married to this woman, and even raises these children as his own. Now, you're probably thinking, God, there might have been an easier way to teach this lesson that didn't involve you having a terrible marriage. But there's something there's something really beautiful about this, this demonstration of God's steadfast love for his people. You see, like Gomer, or in Hosea's context, the people of Israel, we consistently stray from God. We choose temporal pleasure over God's eternal love. But because of how he loves us, we need never worry that we would be abandoned. Listen to the heart of God for his people in Hosea chapter 11, verses 8 through 9. He says this, he says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy again Ephraim. For I am God and not a man the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Notice the qualifier there that he is God and not a man. You see, only God is truly able to demonstrate this type of long-suffering love. We, as his people, uh, are able to experience it, but short of the, the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we're relegated to showing a mere shadow of this steadfast devotion. Now, the final component of hesed is, of course, love. Again, our understanding of love is limited by our cultural context, but understand that this refers not only to love, but also to loyalty, to generosity, and to mercy. This ties in well with the strength and steadfastness discussed earlier, but adds an element of personal involvement on the part of God as he relates to his people. He is not some distant deity unconcerned with our welfare, but rather he is an intimate and caring creator. Now this is where the element of mercy ties in. Because God is personal, he recognizes our desperate need for salvation and our inability to save ourselves. He alone is capable of supplying the mercy adequate to, uh, to, to fill our great need. When you and I think of the word mercy, we often get images that, that connotes a relief from pain. I think of the movie Braveheart. At, towards the end of the movie, the, the main character, William Wallace, is being tortured, and he's offered mercy, and his mercy took the form of a, a quick death. For God, however, showing mercy involves not only relief from uh, the, the just pain that we are experiencing or would be experiencing as a consequence for our sin, but it also includes a wildly generous display of kindness to us. The prophet Jeremiah, mourning over the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, expresses it this way. He says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
as I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking about how blessed I am personally. Um, not only have I been rescued from my sin and brought into a relationship with the creator of the universe, no big deal, but even in this life, uh, I get to enjoy these new mercies, as Jeremiah put it, on a daily basis. When I was growing up, um, I was something of a collector. Baseball cards, pocket knives, keychains, and uh, you know, even at an early age, God put on my heart this desire to one day be a father. And so what I did was I, I actually saved many of these things with the idea that one day I would be able to pass them on to my son and my son would get to enjoy these things like I did. Now keep in mind, this is, this is like a seven-year-old's mindset, a seven-year-old boy's mindset. So parents, you, that's not usual. That's not typical at all. But about a month ago, Elias found this box uh, in, in my closet, and this, this box had my, my keychain collection in it. And he starts pulling it out and playing with them. Each one of these keychains is holding new wonder for him. It's a silly collection. It's probably worth $5 total, right? But to watch my son play with these treasures of my boyhood, it brought me to tears. How great is the mercy of my God that he would allow me not only to enjoy and live in the knowledge that I will spend eternity with him, but he's given me a wife and a son and a family and all of these precious moments that I could not deserve less. God has given each of us so much, not only in his word, his promises to us, his son, but he goes beyond even all of that and reminds us of his mercy daily. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. I wanted to wrap up this morning reflecting on two main things that we see in Mary's song, and in particular in verse 50. The first question that we must ask when we approach any scripture is, what does this teach us about God? What does this show us about God's character? Now, if you haven't noticed, um, the majority of our time this morning has been spent on this very thing. As we explored the words fear, generation, and mercy, we saw aspects of God that pointed to his unique ability to lavish on his people this scandalous love, mercy, and indeed favor. He is the ultimate savior, and his power demands our reverence. But as we look at Mary and Elizabeth, we also see an aspect of God that is demonstrated throughout scriptures, and certainly in our lives as well, which is that he demonstrates no partiality in whom he shows his mercy to. That is, there's nothing particularly uh, remarkable about who God chooses to use for his purposes. In fact, Luke's gospel taken as a whole presents an almost inverted partiality toward the poor, the despised, and the disadvantaged. This brings me to the second question that we have to answer in response to this knowledge about God, is what, is we learn, what do we learn about us? That is, how do we respond to this knowledge of God? What ought our lives look like in response to this knowledge? For me, as I prepared, I saw that Mary and Elizabeth are very helpful examples. In verse 38 of chapter 1, in response to the massive weight of Gabriel's message to her, Mary replies simply, I am the servant of the Lord. 
Similarly, even though socially superior in every way to her young cousin, when Elizabeth recognizes the significance of Mary's pregnancy, she humbly asks in verse 43, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? This humble response is mirrored uh, by her son John when speaking of the coming Messiah in chapter 3 of Luke. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, speaking about Jesus, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These people understood who Jesus is and more importantly, who they are in relation to him. We too are nothing. We are insignificant, and we cannot rely on social standing, wealth, titles, possessions, deeds, or any other measure that human beings have ascribed worth to. When we look at this inverted partiality of God's, we ought to be reminded that there's this danger that comes with affluence because it can easily forget our need for a savior. To combat this, we ought to give thanks Daily for the mercy that has been shown us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. We deserve nothing. In fact, we deserve the wrath of God. We deserve the wrath of God. This realization should also create in us a heart for the things that God is concerned with, namely the poor and the disenfranchised. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus instructs his followers on the concept of mercy and in particular forgiveness because after we understand the mercy that we have received, forgiveness is the natural overflow that we ought to show to others. In Matthew 18, Jesus says this, he says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found that one of his servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and put him in prison until the debt should be repaid. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. In this parable, the debt that is forgiven of the, the, the main servant, to put it in our terms, is in the millions. It's in the millions. Jesus uses an amount that his audience knew could never be repaid within a lifetime. This is contrasted with the other servant's debt, which is, for our purposes, $20. Insignificant in the scheme of things. The point he's driving home here is that you and I and all the followers of Jesus have been shown incredibly mercy, incredible mercy for a debt that we could never hope to repay. In response to this grace that we have received, we as followers of Christ must likewise show the same spirit of mercy and forgiveness when we are wronged. When we fail to do this, and let's face it, we, we fail quite often, 
we not only dishonor God, but we miss out on a, on a special opportunity to experience the joy and the healing that comes with it. Beyond showing others mercy and forgiveness, receiving this love from God should also create in us uh, an overflowing desire uh, to declare what God has done. Mary's song is aptly called the Magnificat, which in Latin means magnify or, or glorify. In response to this incredible blessing she's received, she rightly praised God and gave glory to him. She recognizes here the power of God's word and declares it in song. Which leads me to my last teacher moment of the morning, your homework. That's right, I'm giving you homework. Now, as uh, all of us who have called upon the name of Jesus are recipients of countless blessings, um, I would like to ask you, either individually or as a group or a family, uh, to take the word of God, and I recommend starting in the Psalms, it's a helpful place, and, and find short verses that describe the various attributes of God. And like Mary's song, I'd like you to write a song that describe the mighty works of your heavenly Father in your life. What has he done for you? What is he doing? What do you trust that he will do? I'd like you to remind yourself of this character of his and use your life as the evidence. Beyond just writing the song, I might ask you also to take it a step further and to share these songs with your loved ones. Don't just tuck it away in your Bible or hide it somewhere that it can't be found. Share these songs. Magnify your God by boldly proclaiming the things that he has done. God's mercy has been displayed for us so many times and in so many ways. But the most significant of these is captured implicitly in Mary's song as she sings about her son, Jesus, who was sent by God, the Father, to save his people from sin. This was the ultimate act of love and mercy. Without Christ, this mercy, this hesed, is meaningless. It is worth nothing. In a moment, we're going to take communion, which is for us as believers, a symbolic way of remembering the mercy displayed to us on the cross. I want to close by reading another portion of the psalm that Mary is quoting, found again in Psalm 103. Think on these verses as we remember their Lord's sacrifice on the cross. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Let's pray. O oh God, our Father, it is indeed humbling to examine the mercy and the love that you have poured out so generously on your people and on myself personally. God, it's something that we often take for granted, that we lose sight of, that we forget about. And I pray that this morning as we reflect on all of the things that you have given us, most important of which was your son, 
that we would not lose sight of where we stand with you eternally. God, you have brought us back into relation with you. You have brought us out of our pit of despair, out of our sin, and set our feet on solid ground. You have rescued us. You have rescued us and you, have, you are preparing even now a place for us to spend eternity with you. How incredible is your mercy. Lord, as we continue to dwell on this mercy throughout this, this season of Christmas, I pray that every single day that we would be bowled over by the mercies that you have given us even in this life. Lord, let us not lose sight of the things that we have been blessed with. And may we take those blessings and use them to bless others. May we also be quick to forgive as you have forgiven us our great and unpayable debt. Lord, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for this family that we have here at Risen Hope. May you bless and keep each one of these. And may you accept these offerings of worship as we close our time together. In Jesus' good name, amen.